Welcome to the future of neuroethics. This is Neuroethics Police, a podcast where neuroethics will question the science. So grab a cup of coffee and join me, Catherine Basile, your host, as I guide provoking conversations with experts in the field about their insights on the ethics of neuroscience. We have the technology in this century to redress a predicament that has been with us for three million years. I'm asking you, are you happy with your life? Being born, aging, dying. Italian professor Sergio Canavero believes he can do what no other surgeon can. Death does not sit well with me. This is a man who says he can make the crippled walk again. And more than that, pave the way to eternal life by transplanting a human head. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! A modern-day Frankenstein. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Neuroethics Police podcast. On this episode, uh, the format is a bit different. I will not be interviewing anyone, but we will be having an open discussion with um, PhD and master's students from the Netherlands, from uh, the States, and also actually from two different places in the Netherlands, both Maastricht and Amsterdam. So briefly, I am your host, Catherine Basile, and I will now leave the room for my guests to introduce themselves. So my name is Clara, um, I'm a PhD student at the University of Maastricht in the Neuroepigenetics group. So my research focuses mostly on DNA methylation and microRNAs in post-traumatic stress disorders. So we work mostly with um, human samples um, and mostly with samples that come from veterans that have all kinds of mostly PTSD related disorders. Hi guys, happy to be here. I work in the same division of neuroscience in the University of Maastricht. I just started my PhD here, and my project involves uh, MRIs on postmortem material for Parkinson's disease, trying to see neuroanatomical differences between different, different types of uh, yeah, disease phenotypes. So I'm Eve. Um, I'm known mostly well known for my blog, Academic Eve, and I'm currently a master's student at the University of Amsterdam, studying brain and cognitive sciences. And I'm also completing my internship right now at the Social Brain Lab at the Netherlands Institute for Neuroscience, where I'm studying moral social decision-making. Hi, I'm Megan. Um, you probably know me as Meg Made Up. Um, I am a PhD student at the University of Illinois in the United States. I study neuroscience there, um, specifically focusing on the uh, association between prenatal exposure to common chemicals and uh, infant cognitive brain development. Okay, thank you very much. Welcome all to the Neuroethics Police. So today we will be having an open discussion on some of the most interesting but also um, I would say ethically stimulating uh, topics in the field of neuroscience. And as we know, many research that's been taking place recently has been really calling for a lot of 
um, ethical attention and really some pondering into thinking, okay, what are we doing and why are we doing it? Um, so I will, I will start with a very recent um, research that took place not long time ago where a scientist, neuroscientist, restored a partially function of uh, pig brains after uh, a couple of hours of them being um, deceased. So I think this was really uh, something uh, very interesting, of course, for the field, because we have long been not able to really work and look into the brains in, in, in a 3D uh, uh, fashion, and especially the mammalian brain. Uh, and nowadays, this this is a, a new step forward to, towards being able to work and uh, look into uh, brain disorders by really looking into an intact uh, 3D mammalian brain. But I will start with you, Jackson. What what was the first thing you you thought of when you heard about that uh, research being published? Well, I wanted to see how well they could actually restore function of a deceased tissue like that. And the more I looked at it, it looked like they were mainly trying to just minimize damage that happens after death, not necessarily trying to maintain the function that a brain has during life. And it, was, it wasn't just neuroscientists, it was also um, uh, cardiologists and uh, respiratory uh, technicians that kept multiple multiple systems kind of not functional really I wouldn't use that word it was mostly just maintained to not decay so I don't think it fully crossed a ethical f line but they're definitely dancing on the fence uh, in, in, in what they're trying to do at, at the end of the paper they said if there was actually any cognition that was similar to what it would be like in an alive or like a, like a consciousness, then they had anesthesia ready to anesthetize or completely stop what they were trying to do. Um, but they never had to do that. They just had it as a precaution. So I don't even think that they were thinking they could be able to obtain that level of function. Um, but would it pro probably be desirable at some point to maybe try to restore consciousness? I mean, we know there are a lot of uh, patients that um, are in a coma or or uh, have loss of consciousness and this definitely is um, a tool or a, a, a means to really restore consciousness in those patients so don't you think this would probably be something that um, eventually they would want to try I mean I think there's definitely reasons um, for someone yeah to, to keep pursuing this kind of research and to eventually I mean, for, for me, it's always a thing. If eventually you have a goal in mind that is applicable to humans, and for example, patients in coma, um, sure, I think there's always a reason to pursue it. But you have to be very careful with some... There, there's so much research out there that is, to me, not directly, even long-term, applicable to humans. And that's where I have more issues. I think in this case, I think that would be something desirable. And yeah, why not? I think right now it's kind of very hard to say what their goal with this research was um, in terms of um, studying consciousness in particular. Um, so it definitely looks like they were just interested in looking at the cellular activity of the brain and kind of figuring out how they can improve um, the current methods that they use for studying postmortem human brains. 
rather than having some sort of a very strict implication for what they would, you know, like to achieve with this kind of research in the future in terms of uh, restoration of consciousness. Okay, good point. Uh, Mike? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I would agree. Um, so my first thought when I heard about this was, um, well, I guess I first felt kind of uneasy because of the way it was portrayed in the news. Um, but then reading about it, it sounds like um, they are just interested in this case, at least, um, mostly in seeing if they could restore, restore cellular function, um, possibly for future implications for helping stroke patients. Um, but yeah, I don't know that they, and they don't seem to say anything about their intentions as far as consciousness. Okay, so this is this is very true. So the purpose of this research was really to just look into um, uh, new ways or uh, one step closer to um, better modeling um, um, the human brain or human brain disorders, but also trying to find means and new ways to kind of restore the lost functions that many stroke patients uh, um, uh, suffer from after uh, um, experiencing a stroke. Um, but I think this also raises another question we're asked to, how does this, how does this really change the definition of being brain dead? I don't know. Like, it's kind of very hard to answer because we can't even agree on a set definition on what constitutes consciousness. Um, in terms of uh, kind of scoring uh, patients who are comatose, um, the methods that we're currently using I mean, are not um, the best either. Uh, but and there are so many questions that we don't have an answers to, so it's kind of really hard to say if this does. Change it. I, I kind of think that's a bit maybe too early, um, but it definitely gives us something to think, right? Like how um, maybe influences the way we define this. Well, when it comes to being brain dead and how this article can be applied. It's kind of like if someone in a coma was on respirators, it's keeping their body functioning. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe if some of the methods used in this paper could be applied, it would keep the brain more functioning. So if being brain dead is kind of like this purgatory in between you know, fully alive and fully dead, then maybe some of the techniques used in this paper could in the future be used to kind of pull that person out of that purgatory, make them less brain dead per se, maybe mm, allow them to recover faster if that's a possibility. Um, I'm sure. I'm sure the yeah the lines that are drawn when denoting someone brain dead would change if these techniques would be possible, more applicable. Mm -hmm. No, I mean I totally agree with both Jackson and and Eve, but I think the. Um, I think the big question mark is is here exactly what you point out. What is brain dead? What is consciousness? How do you how do you measure consciousness in someone that is um, in a coma? So th all those things require um, um, way more research on on the consciousness level. But I don't know I don't know how close we are to unraveling what consciousness is yet at this stage. 
Uh, yeah, I would agree, um, kind of with everyone. Um, I do like the, or I think the idea that maybe these techniques could be used in the future to help restore brain function, um, the way Jackson was uh, proposing, that could be really useful and helpful. Um, and that sounds promising. Um, but again, like you said, uh, we can't even quite do agree on the definition of consciousness, so that makes it a little difficult. Yeah, that, that is correct. So there are really a lot of definitions we have to also kind of think of, because also the way to define consciousness is can be very variable. If you are a neuroscientist, you might um, define it in a certain way. If you are a computer scientist, you might define it in a certain way. So it really is also difficult maybe to kind of reach this globalized or general definition that would kind of please everyone. Um, and, and, and this is also, I would say, probably a small issue, which probably would not necessarily stop us from moving forward and understanding and, and, and dealing with ethical issues that come around uh, or, or, or from uh, consciousness-related <coughs> disorders or just consciousness in itself. But of course, it would probably uh, be a very uh, something that will smoothen the road or kind of make things much better and more helpful in, 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 in uh, advancing uh, the research and the field. Um, now, this this also a bit so about what is brain dead is is, is a molecular activity that we see or an increased function in a certain uh, physiological activity in the brain. Um, this brings me a little bit to brain organoids, which is also a, a novel technology which is being used to um, model uh, human brain disorders. And it is definitely not at the same scale of using a mammalian brain, uh, which is intact, um, uh, which is, has almost the size of a human brain. But we do know that both 2D and 3D uh, uh, um, uh, brain systems or uh, stem cell derived uh, neurons and brain organoids uh, do have molecular and cellular activity, uh, but even electrical activity that we can um, compared to what we normally see in, for example, mature neurons or what we normally see in uh, a functional, for example, uh, um, human brain. Um, if we were to say that, okay, several ethical, um, several ethical issues will come out of such a research where we kind of try to restore function or restore some kind of activity in, 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 in a mammalian uh, brain, and, and what are the repercussions of that? Shouldn't we also kind of use the same um, um, line of thought, the same way of thinking to those organoids, those brain organoids, which are growing more and more complex day by day? Um, shouldn't we also apply those same, the same line of thinking uh, to that? Yeah, um, I, I totally agree. I think that brain organoids at the stage that we are now are ethically pretty safe. I mean, at this stage, it's just cell cultures in a dish. It's not, it's not really much more than that. But once you start thinking of applying them on, or or even in um, enhancing them or um, getting them on, on a bigger scale of using or using them for their purpose of um, curing some diseasing transplants, exactly. Then then there's all kinds of other ethical questions that that have to be addressed. But I think at this stage, or maybe they, you you already have to start now. Yeah. But at the stage of, at where 
that we're at right now um, for brain organoids, I think it's ethically pretty safe. Compared to restoring function on a brain that already exists, trying to create function on a brain that you're creating, it's the same line, but it's kind of the, the opposite ends. One's bottom up and one's top down. Yeah. Um, I can imagine it'd be like growing a heart in a lab with your stem cells to have that heart be replace your heart when yours gets old. I'd feel organoids would be the would similar if, if we're gonna, you know, generate full scale organs and for the use of replacement and models. Um, I think it eh, it's a little more ethically safe than it is to try to restore dead material. Is to create material yourself and try to give function to it. I don't necessarily see one being more um, safe or less well, ethically... In, uh, for ethical considerations, one would consider the actual being or animal person that would have the rights onto them prior to death. And then the other is uh, really just a cell culture, uh, if you think about it. And at this stage. At, at this, this stage, stage yeah. yeah. But I mean, that's, that's the thing. You, you, you mentioned um, a heart organoid, for example. I believe always, and, and, and it's in general, whenever heart organoid definitely okay, it's, it's, it's interesting, but does it really carry any ethical uh, uh, implications? But when you talk about a brain, you start thinking of several ethical implications because it's the brain, because it's, yeah, our, the organ where we identify ourselves with, mm -hmm. the organ where we uh, think, feel, where, where, where everything really kind of emanates from. So. I, I don't know, I mean, I know what you mean, but I really think that it's it's in either way, whether you go top down or bottom up, when the brain is involved, you will find ethical implications of how you use this technology to try and model uh, the brain. That's, that's, that's what I think. I think. I think also just as a small side note, I think when we are talking about maybe an intact brain, we start talking about, okay, restoring consciousness. But when we are talking about brain organoids, I do believe it's a bit wrong to say, to talk about consciousness already now, because they are at a stage where they are not even at a size where we can start talking about something that resembles a human brain. But what if we go one step down, one level down and talk about sentient? sentience are they sentient are they able to i mean they are responsive to the environment and that we do know if if, if you add a certain molecule or a certain stimulant to the cells they do respond both molecularly uh, electrically so you do see some kind of response from them they are responsive to the environment so i wouldn't say there is consciousness but i mean probably um yeah probably something uh, uh, that we can acknowledge as being sentient at least and not necessarily go all the way to saying okay we have uh, conscious brain organoids that's I think taking it uh, uh, too far that relates back to the article on the pig where they said if they were to see any function within the brain that would resemble uh, uh, consciousness they would anesthetize yeah. the animal but if I, could, if I can start this premise with thinking about uh, like uploading your consciousness to a computer, <laughs> you wonder where in the computer you, you're set, you would actually sit. Or uh, like in my body right now, a lot of people feel they sit right behind their eyes, maybe in their chest. There's some 
uh, loci, some some center of sense of self. And even if we were to, if I were to take my brain out right now and keep it functioning as electrically as it currently is, there's no eye input, there's no nerve output. It's it's kind of this black box of activity. So. It, it doesn't really interact with the environment as much as a consciousness would, as something that is truly sentient would feel and would act accordingly. Even if, even if, I were to, if these organoids become the sci-fi level that we want of a brain in a jar with the activity of a normal brain, there's no input and output besides itself, really. It's contained. And because of that, I wouldn't consider it sentient. And because of that, I wouldn't even consider it conscious. It would have all the underlying neural correlates that we think consciousness is. It would be, it would have the patterns of activity, uh, but uh, it would, it would be so limited. I think it would be conceptually something else. That's a good point. I think that's a very good point. And I think, um, I think because many people also do not believe that consciousness stems from the brain or from the mind, but they believe it's really dispersed all over your body and not necessarily some of them think oh it's only the heart it's 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 so it, in, in, in that way you don't believe that if that's what I understand that you don't necessarily believe that consciousness is in the brain and in the brain alone and just like you say if we take it out and there is consciousness then the, a, a brain is just a, a brain uh, it, 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 yeah it's just kind of a, a wet piece of tissue with some electrical activity if there's nothing else Go, if there's nothing going in and nothing going out besides just that activity, it's, it's nothing more than just that. Which kind of leads to the next topic of head transplants, where if, if an uh, individual, which I know uh, there's a few this year who are receiving some of the first head transplants in the world. I, I honestly think, at, at the beginning, I think it just, just was a hoax. No, they, they did it on a dog two years ago, and they've been doing it on reptiles for a while. But for humans, uh, in, in, some, in some sense, I think if you were to put your head on a different body and then hook it up so it's functional, I don't even think you'd be fully the same person. In, in a physical sense where you physically wouldn't be. And then in a, I mean, there's so many articles coming up about the gut and the brain connection. It's, it's a real popular topic. Imagine you put a completely different gut on yourself. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to change you physically, it's going to change you mentally. Uh. I think that would be interesting to see in people that receive organ transplants, if <laughs> that mm. is the case. <laughs> yeah, if a bigger I mean, heart really makes someone nice. Can we, sorry. Go ahead. Can we actually say that that's not the case for them? Like, those who receive other kind of organ tra transplants, I mean, Mentally, it's, you know, any type of that kind of surgery is challenging, but yeah, I mean, people report different things and it's whether it's their beliefs or actually that they feel it's, it's, it's questionable, right? We can't say that you don't. So then the same would be for the brain. I mean, I think the neural system is so complex that like, I don't know, giving someone a, a head transplant it's kind of interesting. I'm wondering if they're actually going to be that successful in, in terms of, of performing them on humans, just because of how intricate like, spinal cord, cerebellum, all yeah. basal ganglia, yeah. all yeah. those regions are. Yeah. 
I mean, also there, this, this, since you mentioned um, head transplants, what, what, what do you think? Who would carry the identity? The, the head <laughs> or the, the host body? I mean, that's also questions that need to be taken into account. I mean, this guy just comes up and says, "Yeah, we're gonna do the first human head transplant." He, he, I mean, did they think of all those implications that this might? And then I also always, always ask myself, why? Why does someone want to do a human head transplant? For me, it doesn't sound like something that you need or that the world needs or why? Just literally, why? It, 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 it sounds to me more like someone's just trying to, uh, yeah, either have fun or um, break stereotypes or approve themselves. But, but this is why even we shouldn't even take that seriously, I think, head transplants. I, I don't believe it's something to be taken seriously. But maybe in, in terms of the, what you said about um, who carries the identity, maybe you're creating a new person. If we're saying that consciousness is more than just the brain, if we're saying that it's a whole, if, it's, if we're saying that it's the input, all your experiences, your guts, your brain, who says it's any of those identities? Yeah. yeah. What if you're creating a new person? Yeah. I said the, the sense of self is sometimes behind the eye and mine You know, I've been looking down at my body for my entire life. That's where my consciousness resides, with that in mind every time I, you know, look down at my arms. If I look down and it's suddenly not me, I wouldn't feel like me. Yeah, so somewhere maybe you're, I mean, you become a different person, that's for sure. But yeah, that's the thing. When you are now on a new body, will your brain still think of your body as something, as, as a foreign object or will it probably identify itself with it? Right, you hear so many transplant stories of people with phantom limbs or even if they get replacement surgery they, they don't think it's theirs and their, their brain tells there's some people who stick their hands in nitrogen just because they don't <laughs> wish they think their arm is foreign and they don't wish to have it on their body anymore it's, it's completely dissociated from their sense of self and that's their actual hand they were born with um, It's, it's obviously a, a, a mental disorder to, to, to think that way, but I can imagine similar complications happening with, with any type of transplant, especially if it's as large as a whole body. Yeah. That, sound, that could be really concerning. Um, if uh, we had head transplants, um, like the way Jackson was talking about, um, if they don't, if their body doesn't recognize it as part of it, then what might happen? What might they do? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, psychologically, this is something that you really just really have to put more thought in than I think currently scientists are doing, maybe. Maybe this is more an experience at this point, and let's try it out, let's see what happens. Yeah, but why? I, I wish someone There's would no, give me a exactly. reason. I, exactly. I, I can see how the consideration of a head transplant is one in a million, maybe even one in a billion, but... The individual who I saw in the article that was receiving the first one um, was seriously physically disabled. Um, uh, he was in a wheelchair. From the neck down, his body was um, inappropriately put, relatively useless. He couldn't move. Uh, or imagine even just a quadriplegic, um, uh, a young quadriplegic, maybe a 20-year-old, right, who's... Uh, who has the ability to have a full life uh, if he were to just be given a body, really. Um, it is super rare, of course, 
but the rarity doesn't necessarily negate the importance of a, of a medical procedure and of learning how to do it and of considering these ethical things uh, alongside of it. I don't think there are therapists trained to handle uh, you, body, no. phantom body syndrome. I mean, th this is like a whole new area because I can imagine, ex yeah, just what I said psychologically, how, how do you even process it? As you said, you look down every day, it's not your body. How do you, how do you see it one day as being your own, knowing that it's not your own? Yeah. I don't know how that works. I, I'm, I'm very curious. <laughs> I actually wish it never happens, but yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know why, I just don't really see anything good coming out of it. I mean, I, I do understand the point of view that you, uh, um, that you raised, where, okay, there are, there are individuals that are probably, that they are so desperate enough that they would say no. Just, just, yeah, I do want this. Actually, it's more of a body transplant in that case, or, yeah, I don't know how you want to call it, a head transplant or a body transplant, but it just sounds to me that there are much more cons than pros from out of this procedure that, I mean, at a, in any medical procedure, at some point you have to weigh the pros and the cons. Okay, what's, is, it, is it too risky? Is it not that risky? I mean, and, and, and that's where you kind of decide whether you go through with it or not. And I just don't think it's, give, it's being given that much of a thought that... Than, than, than it, it than should deser that it deserves so yeah and I, I think on a more uh, general scale what I'm what I'm missing with most of these technological or scientific advancement is interdisciplinary discussions about the implications of these procedures with psychologists with scientists with uh, politicians with that some policies are being made because this is not just um, science anymore. This, it, this, I mean, has implications for society as a whole, and that's really something that I'm, that I'm missing. Yeah, that's a very, very good point. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I'd like to raise another point that I think is very interesting in regards to this topic uh, is the um, kind of the criteria of a person who would be eligible for this kind of human transplant, right? Human head transplant, like. Um, considering their, let's say, level of disability, um, would anyone with any sort of body disability then would be able, you know, to apply for this kind of yeah. transplant or, you know, we would have to develop some sort of a system for it. So that's also another point to raise. Exactly. Like what are, what are the guidelines? What, 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 what counts someone as eligible for such a, for such a procedure and, and, and then how many people will apply for that. I mean, that's also something that you kind of want to wanna learn about and know. What, 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 and also, I think, what do people think? Are people for maybe such a procedure? Maybe we are here talking and saying, oh, but this and this and that. But maybe people in general are say, yeah, why not? Let's, let's see what, 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 what we get out of it. And maybe on the other hand, people are probably just really against it don't want it to happen and i think that's generally the the vibe that i got what i've been reading on the internet that it's not something that is really um wanted or yeah favored yeah i think i think those are really just discussions that, that you need to have i mean organized discussions where you where you have different kinds of um people with ethicists, scientists, as I said, um, psychologists, but why not just members of the community also ask them their, their opinion on a, 
um, you know, because this is this is just society that we're changing. This is not just one person. This is questions that we're asking for society as a whole. So I think that's something that is really crucial. Yeah. And then that kind of brings us to our next topic. So we were saying, okay, you have probably quadriplegic uh, patients that say we want a um, head transplant because we really just want to move. But I think there's another line of research that's kind of also trying to answer or trying to meet the needs of those patients and that's uh, brain computer interfaces. And I think that's a very interesting uh, uh, um, uh, technology, a very interesting um, kind of uh, yeah, research that's currently taking place where, um, and we are seeing a lot of results and promising results where um, people are being able to also um, so for example are being able to uh, communicate when they are not able to communicate now this is not probably very relevant to quadriplegic but I mean when we are looking at um, disabilities where you probably say okay there's absolutely no turning back or there's no solution we are trying to find probably a bit more promising more yeah less yeah, less really Frankenstein kind of uh, uh, solutions to that. And I think brain-computer interfaces has really, uh, is really a new niche that is, I would say, really interesting and uh, really promising. Um, oh. I think um, brain-computer interface applications um, is kind of more realistic uh, considering the technological advancement that we have right now and also considering cost and time efficiency um, in comparison to a human head transplant. <laughs> I think trying to develop some sort of new techniques of how you could maybe restore functions even for quadriplegic patients is maybe a more realistic challenge than a human head transplant because like you have to consider time cost exactly. um, healing time um, until you restore all of your full functions so it, it's kind of interesting because it I think it affects the human body tremendously both things and like it's something that a lot of the times maybe people don't consider with very risky surgeries and um, something that should be brought out as a point um, in this discussion because I think it's extremely important. Yeah, I mean, what, what about body computer interfaces for people that are not able to move? I mean, probably this is not the most uh, practical solution. I just made that up, but I mean, that's just, yeah, I mean, you said very, very, very well, Eve, um, cost, time, uh, he healing, we didn't even think about that. I mean, how long is it going to take for a person that just got a head transplant to heal from that, to recover, to first kind of, yeah, get back to, to uh, yeah, being comfortable in their own skin, as we say. I think that's like years. But anyways. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. So then maybe, you know, less, um, with the brain computer interface, a robotic arm or whatever, 
like it the healing time is still long but the result is satisfactory because you do the end result is that you have some sort of a device that helps you with the functioning and um, I think so far those who have it uh, have done these procedures are are, are still happy uh, with the results so then yeah. it makes you question on whether or not we really need to invest time and effort and money into such things like human head transplants maybe we should invest it in brain computer interfaces because I mean, technology still advanced. To me, seems like a more reachable, more attainable goal. Yeah, I fully agree. I think head transplants will be extremely difficult, and there are a lot of ethical confounds. But if a single patient benefits from a productive and successful head transplant, then all the medical confounds would be worth it in the end. It, the why, to answer your old question, is is to help people, is to is to benefit people in a health wise and, and medically wise. But I just have a question. So you, I have a feeling you're a bit in favor. If you believe that this is really going to help uh, the patient, as you say, and but how do we know that? We don't. We don't know that the patient's going to be satisfied after this head transplant. We don't know that they will regain uh, uh, um, their, 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 fun their, their bodily functions and will say, oh, I am the happiest ever. We don't know that. And that's what I think really is, is um, it's an irreversible procedure. It's not something that, it's not a, um, a device like the brain-computer interface that you give, you see results and you see, okay, is the patient happy, not happy? It's something you can never, never reverse. Let's say it was 100% successful. What if the person is miserable? What if they want to commit suicide because they, they, this is not what they expected? Or I think this is where I, I think there are more damages than, I, I'm sure there are benefits and yeah, that's, that's one, one way of seeing I it. I would feel any medical procedure would run those risks, being irreversible, having complications at the end of it. I don't think the first head transplant is gonna be 100% successful and gonna go over smoothly and swimmingly forever. Uh, but I also don't see that as a complete deterrent for ex, uh, researching it and trying to perfect it. I don't know. I just have a problem envisioning what it would be like for someone to just switch bodies. I just... It's a bit difficult for me to swallow, but... I mean, there are, there are, there are yeah, different opinions, different perspectives. Um, that we should definitely take into consideration, but I'm still for weighing the pros and cons, which is what you would do for any medical procedure, uh, whether it's this or another one. True, they are irreversible, but yeah. I mean, yeah, this brings us also into a new, a new window of medical procedures and also the, the costs that sometimes patients have to pay mm -hmm. for wrongdoings during medical procedures and which sometimes are super simple but then they end up being something worse and they're irreversible etc so definitely that's definitely something to take into account i cannot deny that now no I, I was just thinking i'm wondering what the, um, the preparation is for a patient how do you prepare a patient for a head transplant like mentally mentally, mentally. how yeah. do you there must be a, they don't know how they've never done it yeah exactly and i and i wonder how 
um, define that is at this stage. If there is like, because you have to start somewhere, but you have to prepare that person. And that's a process that to me would, would, would take maybe even years. Yeah. yeah, there are experts, expert psychotherapists for PTSD and all other... Uh, correct. There are there is no there's there is no one who has went to medical school for for that specifically for the recovery for the rehabilitation. But even before that, yeah, for the preparation for the rehabilitation for all. I mean, just the the whole procedure. I know we went back to head transplants now. No, 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 no. That's not, I mean, I mean, it's such a such a fascinating yeah, topic it is. that it really is. you cannot but talk about it. Yeah. This is all really interesting ideas, but I, I feel like I'm kind of with you, Catherine, where it just still makes me kind of uneasy. Um, maybe there is promise, but since I don't know, I guess since we just don't really know what's going to happen, we can't really prepare anyone who would go through it. And then how long would recovery time take? What sort of uh, physical therapy might it take for recovery we just don't know um, which could also be used as an argument to do this but um. yeah Fa fascinating topic I have to say I mean um, from I think a we biomedical biomechanical standpoint I believe that a head transplant would be easier to do than a brain chip interface <laughs> <laughs> How so? Okay. What do you mean easier? How, in easier way? in the sense where if, if I can simplify it, it's just cut, move, and then re-sew back together and make sure everything's flowing appropriately. And then, you know. Yeah, but I think each of those steps... But it's, it's terribly complicated, but we've done it before when it comes to other transportation, transplants. When it comes to the neural link, there's a gap that needs to be solved. The gap is in between the neural activity and the receiver and we don't understand neural activity that well and we don't have receivers made on a level of the understanding that we don't have. Exactly. And to fix that gap is is not just biological but it's also technological. It's computers as well. It's 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 engineering. So, so then what do you mean with easier? The head what transplant is, is really just a medical procedure. It's like you're using the same tissue, same no, source no, I, of I, tissue. I agree, I agree. And I think when you when you mean with the brain chip, you're just you're just yeah, you're trying to s merge together two completely different uh, yeah uh, technologies. Techno one would be yeah. a biological yeah. technology. One is a biological. One is really a more artificial. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. It's uh, bringing us to artificial intelligence. <laughs> That's a good link. <laughs> bringing us to artificial intelligence. So I read this article the other day where the title said artificial rights just as animal rights. And I was like, what? What, what, what do they mean? And I read into it. And so apparently some people believe that we might actually be causing some kind of harm to all of this, those new robots and artificial intelligent uh, products, I would say, because they kind of belong to a uh, group 
which is kind of within the group of a, a, animals. A protected class. A protected class, <laughs> exactly. Where they are probably not able to communicate that they are feeling or that they are experiencing some kind of harm. So they should have also rights, just like we have animal rights, in, in, in especially in research settings, because we are, yes, at the end of the day, we are sacrificing those animals for research purposes. But what if we are sacrificing artificial intelligent robots for human purposes? Yeah, I mean, that also partly brings us back to what is consciousness. How, how do you want to define that as consciousness, having an artificial... But computer scientists being? would tell you those artificial intelligent might eventually be might. yeah exactly might so then where how do you know when that actually is the case i don't know i, I find it really hard to and I'm, I'm very i still don't know how i feel about it i still don't know if i agree with it i don't think so i'm very skeptical i i don't know i think um once i read this article um, two things really stood out to me. The first was that the authors mentioned kind of two very opposing um, ways to define consciousness. One was like very liberal, the other was one conser more conservative. Mm -hmm. Then another thing that they mentioned is um, in regards to having um, um, AI ethical protection similar to animal, um, I'm thinking because kind of we humans develop it, it is then more of a moral question for humans how we're going to implement AI into what we would like to achieve. So then it's, you know, can, can really protect AI or should we have those rights to protect ourselves from not going overboard because some of us might not have the same moral standards as, as others. others yeah so it's kind of asking society okay what do you want to do with ai what is yeah, it that, exactly why why are we creating ai what are the purposes of it for humans and if we see at some point that yeah it's go that the reasons are a bit uh, unmoral then probably then we can either put limits to that and if we don't put limits to that then maybe give the artificial intelligent um, yeah, robots or systems, rights. Well, I like the I like what you said, where it comes from humans. So we, it's kind of like we have the freedom to, if there's a if there's an ethical hierarchy, we have a freedom to put AI either below or above us, if we want to. Or besides us. Or beside us, and, and on the same level that we are. Yeah. Yeah. If we. If we think about this hierarchy and we all have rights, humans are, you know, conceptually above animals, but animals are still on this pyramid. They still have rights, but not as much as humans. Um, and we give them that because they are conscious on some level, and whatever you define that level with would, you know, put them somewhere on, the, on that pyramid. But one of the complications of defining the, that consciousness and that uh, autonomy is it's a it's a yeah it's a biological organism we don't fully understand so we kind of give it some give ourselves some some freedom in that sense 
saying, we don't fully understand this, so we should respect it as to do no harm. But with AI, if it's something that we create, if it's truly artificial, that's different. But right now our AIs are not truly artificial. They're very complicated computer programs that we can break down into ones and zeros, and it's, it's little, more, little nothing more than that. And because of that, I don't think it's anywhere touching a level of sentience or consciousness that we need to consider giving them rights that are anywhere equal or antiquated to what animals and humans have at the moment. If it truly becomes artificial in the sense where it starts generating itself... But uh, that's where we're going. That's where we're going. I don't think people are going to stop at, okay, now we're done with AI. I think that's where we're going. We're, the, the, we are going towards making fully functional, human-like robots, AI, to serve us. Smarter than humans, almost. We almost want to surpass that level. And then, in, in some consideration, it might only make sense to put them above us, because then it would allow us to uh, uh, kind of see higher places on this pyramid of, of consideration and, and possibility. I think humans will never do that. And move. <laughs> you, think yeah. they, you just think they want to uh, have some robot slaves, not necessarily want... Uh, I mean, that's how we're designing them. We don't want robot masters. I don't think so. Even if those robot masters would benefit human society. That's what I'm thinking also now. That's actually a good point. Robot <laughs> masters would be, if they're built specifically for human safety and welfare, they'd be so much better at being, you know, doctors and economists than we can. They would have no human error. So you would put the trust, so you would put our humanities progression life the hands, on the line life on the line in the hands of ai i think um person of interest is a very good um tv show touching the topic of ai and surveillance personal and, uh, interest and what we're discussing right now <laughs> of uh, a potential example of what could happen in the future if we are not careful with ai and how we as humans decide um on its application you mean you mean black mirrors no is that no no no, oh, no no it's called person of interest it's a different okay. TV show okay because black mirrors also i would say hands hands down really the best show i've ever watched black when it comes mirror to these things. uh puts ethical considerations into episodes and and, mm. and sometimes it's individuals first time considering such ethical considerations mm -hmm. yeah exactly yeah and i think what jackson's kind of talking about is if ai becomes smarter than us then we have kind of a case like data from star trek and honestly i would put my life in data's hands <laughs> <laughs> thank you very very much uh, mag and eve um, i really hope so much for having us Thanks for listening to Neuroethics Police. Please send me any feedback you have by contacting me on Twitter. And if you want to join in as a guest on my podcast, email me at katherinebasile at gmail.com. Neuroethics Police is an intellectually stimulating podcast produced and hosted by myself, Catherine. Thanks for listening and hope to see you soon.